1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking with Dr. Kelly Colvin about her book titled Charm Offensive, Commodifying Femininity in Post-War France, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2023. This book I found very cool from like a myth-busting perspective, especially, This book explores how a lot of our current ideas still about sophisticated French femininity were created, why they were created, what the impact was. So for anyone interested in anything French-related, this interview I think will very much be of interest. But it really goes quite a ways beyond that as well. So Kelly, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
2: Would you mind starting us off, please, with a bit of an introduction of yourself and why you decided to write this book?
0: Sure. My name is Kelly Colvin. Um, I'm a professor at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, here in the U.S. And I decided to write this book, you know, the early genesis of the book, I'd been sort of thinking about the question of gender and soft power you know hard power being war, economics, things like that. Soft power being more cultural ways that nations define themselves. And actually my my now husband at the time was in a seminar with the person who coined the term soft power, Joseph Nye, and it was also happened to be very late in the George W. Bush administration. So we were in grad school with all of that. And it was the time of like freedom fries and, you know, Americans are cowboys and French people are supposed to be weak in this early part of the Iraq war. And it just made me think. And so I started reading around this and I read Christopher Endy's book on tourism. And in the book, he has this mention of welcome hostesses. Americans would come and the French government sponsored these welcome hostesses who had pink dresses and white gloves and they were there to pass out smile checks. So Americans could reward French women for smiling at them. And I was like, and he just mentions it in like a sentence. This is very weird. So I sort of worked from there and worked backward and found this like nugget of air hostesses that then the project really grew out of. I can imagine how
2: odd that would be to find, <laughs> to be like, hang on, what is happening here? So I, I'm exactly. very pleased. No, exactly. I'm, I'm so pleased you pulled that thread and have the story um to explain that to us. So starting, I guess, at the beginning, why did French authorities want to showcase its women in the immediate post-World War II era?
0: Well, France was destroyed. I mean, destroyed in World War II in almost any way you can possibly imagine. Many of your listeners have probably seen the images of just decimated roads and rail stations. And so economically, it was devastated. Materially, it was devastated. And before the war, there really had been what I argue, are three pillars of France's reputation in terms of its strength and just general identity. And one had been it had a very strong economy. The second was that it had this huge empire, global empire. And then the third was really this reputation for sensuality and particularly for sensual women. And at the end of the Second World War, as I mentioned, it's economically destroyed. It had either begun to lose or had already lost large swaths of this empire. But one thing that remained was this reputation for sexy, beautiful women. And so there's sort of, I think, this impulse to go all in on that in order to regain this um, some sense of global strength. It
2: is was fascinating to me reading that kind of looking towards French women was one of the methods that the government um, sought to do this that I guess hadn't occurred to me as in the midst of this devastation looking to that as an area Um, but clearly that was a focus and as you've already mentioned um, Air France the hostesses on the airline become very much the central part of this so can you walk us through a little bit kind of who were these hostesses how did women become an air france hostess like take us inside these in some ways
0: they sounded like very strange rooms (laughs) they're very weird to our ears today they have incredibly strict requirements to become air hostesses so um around 1944 1945 the one of the main industries that the government wants to rebuild is its airline industry. And part of the reason for this is that France has actually long been a pioneer in that industry. It really was only rivaled in a a major way by the United States. And so rebuilding that industry was something that Charles de Gaulle, when he was head of the provisional government, prioritized. But how to get people to fly on the planes was really the huge question and again the government turns to women and i'm glad you pointed that out the the government piece of this is one of the things that i think is the most interesting and as i'll, I'll go through some of the requirements but the idea that a government would mandate this seems particularly uh french and um ripe for analysis we'll say so in order to be a hostess you had to pass a series of initial screenings and so they held like open calls for women um and they were very like i said very strict requirements for height you had to be between one and a half and 1.7 meters you could weigh no more than 140 pounds your waist could only be 70 centimeters with the max or 27 and a half inches. Um, you had to be between the ages of 21 and 30. You had to be single. You needed a certain level of education. You needed first aid or nursing training. And you needed to speak both French and English. And in addition to that, German, Spanish, or Italian so those were like the very very initial requirements and oftentimes they would try these little tests to see if someone actually could speak English. So they would be like, uh, do you speak English? And then they could cut some of the some of the candidates. But the other part of it, so once you got past those initial requirements, and again, picture a room with, you know, hundreds of young women there being weighed and measured and tested and to be a hostesses then you would go into a separate room with a jury and the jury would be it really depended it could be anywhere from like five to ten people it was almost always all men although in later years they would add a current um air hostess to the panel and these men would judge the women on their general allure which I found really fascinating. Allure is like this very fluent category. What does it actually need to be alluring? If you really think about it, it's something that's very individual to different people. But there was a panel that said, this person is alluring, this person is not alluring. They were also judged on their walk, almost like models, runway models. Um, And then their bodies were, again, scrutinized. So even if they had passed the height and weight test, if there was some sort of what the jury would deem a misproportion, then she could not be a hostess. And then after that, they had to go through pretty rigorous psychological testing that the hostesses at the time sort of described as like a series of hieroglyphs, hieroglyphs that they could barely understand. They had no idea what was going on. And that was all just to become eligible to be a hostess. So it's it's not really for the faint of heart. And then after that, you had to do um, the actual training for the job. So this meant beauty training, how to put on your makeup, how to put on your uniform, as well as other kinds of training. And The big part of this was once you were assigned to a line, say you had the Paris, New York line, which was the most coveted line. All of the women loved going to New York city because um, it was untouched by war in a lot of ways. And so there was a lot of shopping and, but once you got assigned to a line, you also were expected to know a good amount about the, the culture that you were visiting. So if you were coming to New York, You had to know what exhibits were in the museums. You had to know what restaurants were cool and hip or where to go for this. So if passengers had any kind of question for you, you needed a baseline of knowledge about that particular culture. So it's very intense.
2: Yeah, it was. I mean, I was just reading this with my jaw pretty much going, wait, hang on, another thing, another thing. And I couldn't help but wonder as I was reading these criteria and of course thankfully you then address this as the next part of the book why would why do this why put yourself through this and of course obviously the idea of travel and untouched by war that that's some amount of enticement but what sorts of women became
0: hostesses
2: and why
0: yeah i wondered the same thing like why would why would you put yourself through this but One of the things that I found most interesting, so first of all, demographically, it was mostly middle-class women and also middle-class Parisians. If it wasn't middle-class, it was more likely to be upper-class. It was very, very, very rare, given the requirements, particularly for education and language training, that working-class women were allowed to join the profession. So... There are very few opportunities for middle-class women to work at this time, and particularly jobs that were considered morally acceptable for middle-class women. And so these women, as you mentioned, they want adventure. They want to see the world, and they are looking for money. It paid relatively well in this time of deprivation. And the other part about this is that for these middle-class women, their families and the company as i get into a little bit later in the book view the work as temporary it's not it's not a lifelong career it is something that you do until you get married and that's it so it's really these women who travel in relatively well-to-do circles who do this for a few years and then stop that's the ideal for the company and that's the ideal for the women's families
2: Alright, phrased that way, it makes sense, or at least more sense, so thank you for taking us through that. Um, Now that we have an idea of how these women are chosen and trained, why one might want to do it, I think we now need to go back to this whole thing about the smile, because it's already up. It was such a pervasive part of what seemed to be the attraction of these women, of the charm So. Why was it such a big deal? What's so significant about the hostess's smile
0: and why was such a fuss made about it? Such a great question. The smile becomes a symbol of the company. And in a lot of ways, it becomes almost like synecdoche. The women are their smile. The hostesses are their smile. The post-war recovery starts to see other airlines in europe in particular recover as well and so the question really becomes why would anyone use air france like and why go to france and what the air france executives who i shouldn't say at this point are actually ministers in the government so it's very connected. So the Air France executives argue that the big reason that they would come to France and travel on Air France was the women and their smile and that the women needed to be the people who welcomed people and attracted passengers to Air France and, by extension, France as well. But one thing that I really found interesting when researching this was looking into the concept of effective... Labor, which I had actually not ever really heard of before. And the idea is that, you know, we're humans in the world. We go out, we order coffee, we do our jobs, we do this, we do that. We all have a public persona that we have to adopt to exist in the world. Um, if we all said everything we wanted to, well, who knows? But we all So we all act a little bit in our lives, but this is really another level because this is a company and a government that is telling women that it is not acceptable to have any other, not just expression on their face, but a smile, but also it is that they should feel this internally as well. So it's controlling both the physical and the emotional lives of these women and one of the things that I found interesting was the toll that it really took on the women. You know, in some ways, it's, it's not a fun job. Even then, when it was a little bit more glamorous to fly and there are fewer people on planes and better food and all of that, it still was very stressful and very difficult. And people had very high expectations of these women And so the hostesses would have to deal with difficult passengers, as we'll talk probably a little bit later about. They had to deal with a lot of sexual harassment from passengers. Um, Um, Mothers had high expectations that the hostesses would simply take their children and watch them on the planes or prepare food like a la minute for them. So there were a lot of things that the women had to navigate, but they were never allowed to like drop the mask of... The welcoming smile and in around I think it was 1969 there was actually a big test of employees for Air France and their mental health and it was found that hostesses were seven times more likely to be grounded for mental health reasons than pilots who as we know sit in the cockpit and don't really deal with the passengers and don't have the requirement to constantly wear this smile. But the company also built whole advertising campaigns around the smile as well. and So it just really became the thing in the 50s and 60s that Air France hostesses were known for.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: I think that in that context of the challenges of flying and the fears of passengers, it kind of is even more remarkable to me how much the smile was required kind of in any potential, you know, in any possible circumstance, many of which we perhaps don't think of as much today in terms of flying. Um, I'd like to pick up on something though you just mentioned about kind of that environment and obviously there's a number of threads I want to pull on that we'll probably get to but to start off with um I think the element of sexual harassment of sexuality is very much part of this myth that in some ways we still have today and I was honestly a bit surprised that the earliest portrayals of these stewardesses that you focus on in the book don't necessarily seem to be focused on the sexual side as much but then that changes so can you take us through kind of to what extent is this sexualized image that we might have now has that always been the case why was or wasn't it when did it change
0: great question so in the introduction to the book i actually cite another scholar's work on the liberation of france Her name's Mary Louise Roberts. It's a fabulous book. It's called What Soldiers Do. And she talks about how one of the unique qualities associated with the Americans in particular in liberating France is the amount of um, sexual assaults that they perpetrated. And it was not something, you know, when they came... On D-Day, it was not something that was seen on the Canadian side. It was not something that was seen on the British side. It was really specific to Americans. And she argues that the U.S. government, in its literature directed at potential soldiers and then already existing soldiers, literally seduced them with images of lascivious French women into fighting for for you know for the liberation of europe so at the very end of the war and in the liberation period there was a lot of animosity between french people and americans in particular american officers who very rarely punished soldiers for this behavior and So there was an assertion that, no, 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 like French women are not lascivious. They're not just constantly having sex with whomever. They're good girls. But when the government needed to tap into a reputation in order to lure people, and again, it was really particularly Americans to France, they do tap into it. But you're right, it's sort of more of a slow burn into it than one might expect. So in the initial iteration of the hostess, what she's really meant to do is recreate a home environment on the airplane, but like this idealized one, you know, of like a, a man. It was usually male travelers in these earlier days of flying. And the idea was he was coming home to what in French is called the maitresse de maison, which is literally translates to the mistress of the house. Um, And she would pour him a drink and serve him food and see to all of his comforts. It's this, you know, like, again, very idealized image of a home environment. She's always smiling. But as we move into advertising campaigns later on, there's a promise from the company of a sexual availability that that comes into play. Um, and the company ads begin to sell the hostess's bodies as well. There's one that's, I think it was in Vogue magazine that said something like, our lovely ladies are ready to pleasure our passengers. Or there was one that said like, We are ready to deal with lots of affaires, which in French means business, but it also can have this double meaning of affairs. So the company really begins, I would say, in the later 50s, but really in the 1960s, to play with this idea of come to Air France, not just because we have the most beautiful, smiling air hostesses, but we also have the most sexually available ones as well
2: which is i think some of what we still have today in a lot of ways so it's fascinating to see kind of where that comes from in that's i think part of that aspect but very much also something you briefly mentioned in terms of the incredible training regimen that i'd love to ask you to tell us more about is the beauty the fashion element of all of this the fact that learning how to put on makeup in a particular way was part of the training, was fascinating. Can you tell us a bit about the role that these women and Air France more broadly played in the kind of wider popularity, I suppose, of French fashion and beauty in the post-war era?
0: Sure, yeah. So I refer to them often in the book as ambassadrices, which is just the, the female version of ambassador but it doesn't quite translate. It's, it's more, instead of just the woman equivalent of ambassador, what I argue is it's actually more an ambassador of femininity. And in that way, the women are not political, they're not diplomatic, but their bodies become these transmitters of this idealized French femininity And part of this has to do with their uniforms. Air France is really the first to kind of capitalize on clothing the hostesses in this industry that's so aligned with French national pride, the fashion industry. So they use these couture designers to dress the hostesses so The idea, again, is this like perfect woman who's gliding around in this couture uniform on the airplane serving me drinks. But it's not just the uniform. You know, the hairstyle was really important. They had company mandated hairstyles. One very famously was called the tambourine. And it kind of looks like a tambourine under the cap that they used to wear. Um, And their beauty routine was really specific as well. Like you could wear a certain kind of makeup. They went to um, a very famous makeup brand's headquarters in order to learn how to do French makeup. If they were going to be ambassadors for this ideal of femininity, then they needed to be wearing the correct things. Their bodies needed to be the correct shape their hair needed to be perfect and their makeup needed to be perfect because they weren't just themselves. You know, they were representatives of this nation that was counting on femininity to dig it out of this this post-war hole. Which,
2: I mean, just kind of all those things combing together is really interesting to think about and I definitely had the mental image of kind of the troop of stewardesses in their uniforms with the hair kind of marching through Paris to um, all go to the makeup headquarters and kind of what would have happened there. Um, And speaking in some ways of kind of marching through places, I guess, given what you've told us so far, it's not particularly surprising that this really caught a lot of attention, really made quite a large impact, so much so that it, very quickly seems that it wasn't just Air France who was had women who were doing these kinds of things. It very much spread beyond the airplane. Can you take us through a bit of how and why that happened?
0: Sure. Um, it's a huge success. As you might imagine, the program is an enormous success. And it's not just a success because the hostesses become renowned for their beauty and ability to kind of spread French greatness, it's a huge success because the airline benefits from it and the country benefits from it. So the government, I I should go back and say Air France became, in terms of destination, the largest airline in the world during this immediate post-war era. The government orders the expansion of the industry. So it goes from these women on planes who are, you know, serving the passengers and then the people it expands out from there to the people who actually work the desks in the airport. So the public points of contact are all of these beautiful women. And then it expands even out from there, so you start to have host see hostesses again mandated by the government in um, train stations, in bus station, in those visitor kiosks that you see in villages, in camping centers. I mean, really, like cities had their own hostesses. You name it, hostess was everywhere. And there's a really telling quote from a senator who talks about the success of the air air hostesses who says, you know, it would be basically says it would be great if every woman could be something like this. And I think about like the pressure that that must've put on the women at the time, given what we know about the requirements to become an air hostess, the thinness, the linguistic capacity, the education, the, but really the, the the general allure, how do you how like what what kind of pressure does that put on any given woman at any time to do that? But it expands the funny thing is it expands even further from there. So one of the things I talk about in the book is how huge global events, any huge global event would have hostesses at it. So I mentioned the Brussels World Exposition um, in the 1950s, but the Grenoble Olympics were in some way the apex of this moment. And when France hosted the Olympics, it was really a moment where the president of France, Charles de Gaulle, was wanting to showcase this society french society as a powerful society and again france is coming off of a period in which it is losing ground in many of the hard power measures so what they mandate when they win the grenoble olympics is that every sport every hotel every part of grenoble is staffed by these hostesses and in order to do this, they recruit women. Yes, but they find trainers. And the person that they have to train these hostesses is the head hostess for Air France. Her name is Solange Catri. And she comes in and she basically creates an army of these hostesses so that all of these athletes, but even really more importantly, all of these journalists from all over the world can come and see that French women are sexy, that they are beautiful, that they are fashionable, that they are available. So it just really explodes this concept of hostessing.
2: Absolutely, and I think the point about pressure and especially the pressure to, as you mentioned earlier, always have a smile, right? That's that's a huge one because that's literally kind of every instant of any interaction. Um, So it's very worth highlighting the explosion of it. And it's not just in France. So can we expand that even further? And could you tell us a bit about the reception reaction to these hostesses in the U.S.? And also maybe why the U.S. was such a key audience?
0: Sure. Yeah, the U.S. was really the main draw for the French at this time. And the reason is that the United States was the financial center of the world by this point. You know, like we know that, yes, it had started to move that way after World War One. you know, from places like London and Paris to New York. But in the interwar period, the U.S. is kind of less interested in being involved in not just like global affairs, but also a little bit global financial affairs after World War II, clearly a different story with the Marshall Plan and with with many other things. But also like, you know, two giant wars destroying the infrastructure of Europe in less than, what is it, 30 or so years. Like, that really changed the financial map of the world, and New York City really became that capital. And what the French want is Mm -hmm. dollars. Tourism, already by 1946, is the second largest industry in France. And I should say, like, the industrial output of France after the war was something like 38% of what it had been in 1938. So, I mean, it's pretty strikingly decimated. It's not just that it wants the American dollars, it needs the American dollars. And the way that they target American dollars is, again, through this tourism industry that has become so central to the French economy. So advertising campaigns for Air France are hugely important in trying to get Americans to come over. But also the idea that France is fancy and France is beautiful women and France is luxury goods and France is fashion and as I mentioned earlier, like it's the women, it's these hostesses who can carry all of this on their bodies. So when you mention expansion, you're totally right. They send these hostesses not just on airplanes to sit in airports. These women go everywhere. They are in Dillard's department store in Atlanta selling Air France-inspired handbags. You know, they're in San Francisco. They're in Chicago at like a fancy polo event talking up the tra- the perks of travel to France. So they really target Americans. They do detailed research the government does about how much money average middle-class Americans have. because That's a key shift from tried to attract upper class Americans before World War II to really targeting middle class people. Um, so they, they do this detailed market research about how much money Americans have and should be spending, in their opinion, in Paris in particular. And they go after them and they use these women, they send them everywhere to attract people to France. And so the concept of anything to do with France is somehow fancy or chic or mysterious, you start to see it spread even further than it already had. I think I mentioned things like, you know, parties in California that are French themed, or there's a sorority in Georgia that had like a Pigalle night, which is a neighborhood in Paris. So it really becomes quite ubiquitous, this association of... France with these beautiful, elegant women and the hostesses are the key.
2: That's, I think, really helpful to understand kind of just how big a deal it is and also what the stakes are um, for why there's such an emphasis on this. And so I guess my question is, if that's what France is trying to get from this, what are the impacts? How, for example, do is France described as a country um, while this is all kind of happening and becoming more popular? Like, does this, does this have an impact on how France is perceived?
0: Yeah, it's interesting because what I noticed over the course of this time period was that the country itself starts to become perceived as feminine and just this incredibly strong link with these women and with these, um, you know, laundry women's handbags this luxury beauty industry, this fashion industry, it's very much geared towards women. And so the portrayal of France in the popular imagination becomes more feminine. So not only is France a place with beautiful and often very willing women in the popular imagination, it's also described as a woman more generally. You know, there are lots of writers, um, from around the world who start to talk about how Paris is a, you know, a former lover that you just can't get out of your mind. And, um, and I find that I'm not quite sure, to be totally frank, like, what does that mean if this this notion of soft power has almost translated into like an effeminacy of the nation? I'm not quite sure if that's what the executives of Air France and these government ministers had intended. In fact, I'm quite sure that they hadn't intended that. But it's very interesting in a time when a lot of these traditional measures of power are waning for the French military economy, but this one marker is surging. What does that do to the reputation of the country?
2: I find it actually quite amusing to think of the French ministers and how they might have responded to this, because I, I agree, I don't think that that's probably what they were going for. Um, but they did at least get some things out of it. So, you know, there there is that, I suppose. Um, speaking of getting things out of it, though, I think there's kind of an easy supposition that having so many more women um, recruited into the workforce, I mean, just from a purely numbers point of view, like, this is opening up a bunch of jobs, especially to middle-class women that wouldn't have necessarily had these kinds of opportunities before, Um, puts them in very prominent positions. There's an easy jump, I think, to go, well, does that help women? Does that, you know, do they unionize, band together, representation? I mean, we are, especially in the 60s and 70s, talking about um, women's liberation in at least the US, for example. Does any of this prominence and sort of size help French women?
0: It's such an interesting question, Miranda. And I think in part, it depends on what your definition of help is, which sounds like I'm really parsing words, but I'll try to explain what I mean. What I find it to be is really that this power that women get as these ambassadors of femininity is a form of aesthetic power it's not really political power. It's not really, you know, diplomatic power that a traditional ambassador would have. It doesn't really translate into those milieus. Like you don't see these hostesses necessarily, you know, all of a sudden jumping from being hostess to being a political minister. It's not something that happens. Um, and the amount of labor that women have to perform to keep up this feminine ideal is something that i found when i was researching to be really shocking when you consider the fact that women were paid significantly less than their male counterparts to begin with and this like you're saying this is the 60s and 70s it's far worse than even today then you realize like they don't have these women and they have to be single they don't have a lot of money to work with. And yet they're expected to purchase the makeup, you know, the do the hair care, do the clothing. All of that costs a lot of money. And so even the economic power that they gain from these positions does become stunted when you consider the impact of all the things that they have to buy, all the maintenance costs to, to maintain this. The statistic I found fascinating was that French women, I think it was up until just a couple of years ago, spent more than any other nationality of women on beauty products. So you take that and then you also add in this idea that we talked about, about emotional labor, this this thought that you constantly have to be pleasing and sexy and smiling and you can't actually let on that maybe this is impacting your mental health or maybe you're just not having a great day and you don't feel like smiling I'm not sure it translates in the way that as you said there's a simple narrative that could show like you know they got jobs they made a decent salary and and that should in some ways catapult them I I would complicate this a little bit. One of the things I loved the most in researching this was seeing how um, the hostesses were the pioneers of women's unionization in post-war France. And what it made me think was, you know, like the government, the company, they could try to control a lot of factors here. And they did, right? Like the height, the weight, the language, the this, the that. But... When you get a group of people together who are performing the same work and it's hard work, you can't really control the conversations that they have about the job. And so these women really fought back and they are pioneers in challenging age discrimination laws, marriage discrimination laws, all of these kinds of things that I think we probably take a little bit for granted, some what would it be like 50 60 years later they really are the pioneers so there is some power inherent in it but the larger picture of this aesthetic power does it really translate into real power for women I would probably say no Mm
2: -hmm. and I think that's one of the important myths being busted in this book as well so thank you for sort of talking us through that aspect on that point of kind of thinking about it from today's perspective, obviously, I've mentioned a few things that I saw as being things that we still have, at least some of today. But given that you're obviously much more expert on this than I am, do you see any of these messages or any of these legacies um, with us now
0: from from these efforts? Sadly, I see them everywhere. And Um, Unfortunately for you, now that you've read this, you will probably start to see it everywhere as well, where this like everything has some sort of tie in to this idea of like uh, French ideal femininity and and the pressure that it puts on women to try to to live up to. So in the conclusion, I really talk about how there's become this like cottage industry. I don't even know if you could call it. Maybe it's called like a chateau industry. It's so big of of not just creating this ideal femininity but continuing to sell it and sell it hard i don't know if you're familiar with like the the self-help books that come out about french women all the time but one of the most famous here was french women don't get fat and it's sort of like how french women are able to eat what they want and never gain weight There are books about parenting, how French babies and children are better behaved than other people's children. There are books about marriage, about how French women are doing this better. Um, If you're on Instagram or any kind of social media, there's a lot on French girl chic. And what I really wanted to say in some way, it's like this is not natural. This is not biological. This is not innate. This is the creation of a company and really a government that is in crisis that taps this population that taps this idea of superiority and foists it upon the world. In so doing, it foists it upon French women on one side of the equation that they have all of this pressure to live up to it. There's a lot. At, there's a lot on. Um, I've actually been working on something about fatobia in France and how intense it is and how it has really nationalistic tones i was going to say undertones but it's really just tone to it um but it also puts a lot of pressure on women who are not french who are who are supposed to live up to this ideal that they just can never access because it's supposed to be so innate and almost like biological in origin so i see it everywhere and i find it to be really awful um and i think taking something like this back to its creation and seeing like what are the actual building blocks and why do people do this? Why do people create this ideal? And also who benefits from it? And probably more importantly, it's your question of who does not benefit from it. I find that to be really um, both fascinating and in some ways for, for me, like helpful of, oh, this is not real none of this is really real like none of this is in it no
2: that that's um i think goes back to what i was sort of hinting at right at the beginning of this book is about french studies and french history but is also a lot broader than that and in fact in preparing for this interview um, a friend of mine asked me kind of oh that book sounds interesting what's it about and in fact the answer you just gave is sort of what i said is the main takeaway it's about excavating where this idea comes from and revealing that it's much newer and much more manufactured than we think. Um, and maybe that helps us challenge it a little bit. So thank you for, um, kind of explaining that properly in a way that I couldn't. Um, I do have one final question for you though, despite kind of the, all the useful things you've already told us, I do have one more to ask. Uh, the book is obviously out, it's done, it's off your desk. Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's about Air France stewardesses
0: that you'd like to highlight for our audience? Well, happily for the hostesses, I am setting them aside for now. Um, and, And like I mentioned, I'm actually working on, I have two new projects that I'm working on. One is a little bit farther along, and that's about food and identity in very late 20th century France. And it's meant to kind of be like a shadow history of that time. And the idea behind it is that you see lots of women, as you mentioned before, this is a time in the 60s, 70s, although this book is sort of more 70s, 80s, when women are making lots of headway, particularly in the world of work, but also there's a pretty vociferous feminist movement. And food becomes a language that is used to debate that Quote unquote progress. So the book talks a little bit about like, can women be great chefs? And there's a just really unbelievable misogyny associated with that. Like, I like women in my bed, not in my restaurant kitchen kind of comments. But there's also the question of women working more, you know, and the way that that gets talked about in the popular press is that they're no longer staying home, they're no longer making this, you know, traditional food that takes hours to make, the meals are shorter, and the children are suffering. But it's also a bit about immigration and the question of non white women coming into France and how people talk about that is often, oh, their food is unhealthy. They eat too many carbs. Those women are not thin enough, and they're not integrating enough into our culture. So it's kind of this like shadow history. And then the the other project I'm working on that's in much more recent stages is about um, a rape trial. So very different kind of thing, and that happened in en Provence, in the 1970s, and. Um, I'm really studying the reactions. So so it kind of redefines rape in, in French law. And the reactions to the law are really interesting, and particularly to the women who push for the law. And it's often a reaction to what I would call like legal limitations on sexual access to women's bodies. The labels that they put on women who are very pro this law tend to be that they're, lesbians that they're fat or one thing that's particularly interesting is that they're too close to american feminists because americans and to a certain extent english feminists and british feminists are supposed to be um, too puritanical you know like not uh understanding of this french culture of seduction and the thing that inspired that was the, the me too movement in france where there's a sub movement of it that says like women have the right to be bothered, which is essentially like the right to be you know, harassed, I guess we would call it. So those are my two projects that I'm working on now. And we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully something will come of it very soon. Hopefully there'll be books
2: and we can have you back to tell us all about them. So best of luck with those projects. Um, But while you're working on them, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Charm Offensive, Commodifying Femininity in Post-War France, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2023. Kelly, thank you so much for being with us
0: on the podcast. Thank you so much, Miranda. It was such a pleasure to speak to you today.